I just started the recording, so let's get started. Wait for it. All right. So this is probably going to be impossible for you guys to see on TVs, obviously. So mainly for me. Uh, but if you have it on your computer, it is more than legible. And if you print it out, uh, which I was trying to do for you, but the printers, uh, they didn't like my no margins, so it didn't let me print it out. Um, but anyway, I digress. Can you guys see it okay on your computers? Yes. All right. Fantastic. So. Uh, we're going to cover a lot of medications. Um, these medications are all used interchangeably for a lot of different things. Um, this is not infectious disease medicine, so I'm not necessarily going to be harping too much on every single specific condition that you're going to be using these medications for. We're going to be talking mainly about mechanism of action, um, the type of coverage that you're going to be getting from it, and we'll definitely touch on what conditions you're treating it for, but I'm not gonna be testing you guys on the conditions per se. Um, we're gonna teach it because it's really important, but we're not gonna like emphasize that on the exam. You're not gonna get vignettes with patients who have pneumonia and how do you treat them. Um, even though you've done POEM, I'm not gonna do that because that would be like studying for like a full, full exam. Um, for antibiotics, there's a lot of different ways that you can break down the drugs. Um, and a lot of different things you have to remember about the drugs. So you have to make different buckets in your brain for how to remember them. Uh, the three biggest ones that are going to help you clinically and are going to help you on exam questions um, is obviously by what type of bacteria the antibiotics treat. So you have gram-negative, gram-positive, and anaerobes are your three big buckets of types of bacteria. Within those buckets, there is specific bacteria because some of them cover some bacteria within each category. But what you need to remember is which ones cover the worst bacteria in each category. And if they cover the worst bacteria in each category, you know that they cover everything else. Okay, And that's the easiest way to kind of put it all together. So for gram-positive, your worst bacteria is going to be what? MRSA. Okay? So you need to know every antibiotic that covers MRSA. Okay? There's quite a few of them. We'll talk about them. Um, when you're practicing clinically, you just have to remember the ones that you use. Like outpatient-wise, there's not many. There's Bactrim, um, there's doxycycline, um, and there's clindamycin. And that's pretty much all you're doing. There are only three that you have at your disposal for outpatient treatment. Uh, for gram-negative, what's your worst pathogen? Pseudomonas. Pseudomonas. Huh? So pseudomonas is your worst gram-negative pathogen that you have to cover and worry about whenever you're treating uh, or suspecting or wanting to cover for gram-negative infection. So if you know all the anti-pseudomonal medications, you know which ones are going to be really good for gram-negative coverage. Um, and then you have your anaerobes. And what's your worst anaerobic bacteria that you worry about? Bacteroides, fragilis, or fragilis, right? So you want to have medications that you know in your mind that cover this specific pathogen. If you do that, then most of your questions are going to be talking to you about MRSA, they're going to be talking to you about pseudomonas, and they're going to be talking to you about anaerobes. Okay? So if you have that in mind, it's going to narrow things down quite a bit. Huh? From the beginning? That's a good question. Yeah, I think that this should be one of the first modules that we teach. Yeah. So there's other buckets that are not as important, like um, some antibiotics work by being bactericidal, which means that they kill the bacteria, and others work by being bacteriostatic, which means they stop the growth of the bacteria and ultimately let your body get rid of them. 
you don't care as a provider how you're fixing the problem. You only care that you're fixing the problem. Um, I'm not going to be testing you so much on bactericidal versus bacteriostatic because I don't think it's of um, extreme importance in, in management. And I don't think that the PANS is necessarily testing you guys on bactericidal versus bacteriostatic properties. Okay? Um, but that's another bucket that we use to kind of differentiate them. Uh, and then it's going to be by mechanism of action and by drug class. So really important when you're studying for antibiotics that you know the drug classes and you know what medications fall under each drug class. Um, for instance, the beta-lactams, they, they encompass a really wide range of medications. They include penicillins, they include um, cephalosporins, uh, monobactams, and carbapenems. And then with, within each subclass, you have the actual medications that pertain to that class. So obviously, when you're taking a test question, it could be referring to beta-lactams, it could be referring to penicillins, cephalosporins, or it can be asking you about the actual drug name, and you have to know where that drug falls in all of those different categories. So spend some time to memorize your drug classes and medications that are under each class. Somebody had a question? Krista? Um, it was a stupid question. That's okay, you can ask it. I love those. <laughs> Are all these lectures going to be on the upcoming test? Are all these lectures going to be? Yes, absolutely. They're all going to be on the upcoming test. I figured. Yeah. There Plus you. the other ones. Wait, no. No, you mean like osteoarthritis and all that? Yeah. That's a separate exam. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Four lectures, osteoarthritis, gout, rheumatoid arthritis. Yeah, that's one pain, one lecture. Oh, okay. I thought you were mixing all of them. No, 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 no. I wouldn't do that. That's terrible. That's awful. This is for exam five. Yes, 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 yes. Exam five. Good question. That was not a super question. Fantastic. All right. So, so those are the different ways that you can break down the. Those are the different ways that you can break down the medications, um, and things are going to help you as you're going along. It's not going to make it any. You know. It's still going to be difficult. There's a lot of things to remember, a lot of adverse effects, a lot of drug interactions. Um, so we've done a really good job, I think, of narrowing it down to like three pages worth of information. Um, so that should be very palatable um, in the grand scheme of things. And I promise you, if you know everything that's on these charts, you probably know everything you need to know um, to use these medications clinically and to answer pretty much any question you'll get on these medications on your pants. So we're going to start with beta-lactams. Um, beta-lactams is a big, broad, general class that encompasses medications that have beta-lactam rings in their structure. Okay, um, And that's all you need to know about that in terms of the actual structure. We're not going to go into it. This isn't microbiome or anything like that, so we're not going to worry about it. Um, these medications are, again, as you go up, and they're pretty much in order, as you go up in medications, you're getting into medications that are a little bit more efficacious for more broad spectrum applications. Um, so when we start off on the first class of penicillins, those are going to be um, some of the first primary natural penicillin medications that were created that have very limited scope and very limited use. Okay, So that's going to include the penicillin G and the penicillin V. All of the medications in the carbapenem, I'm sorry, in the beta-lactam class work in the same way. And the way they work is by inhibiting cell wall synthesis. And that's what you need to know about the mechanism of action. And you do need to know it for your pants. You may be asked questions about how beta-lactam antibiotics work. And the answer is always going to be inhibiting cell wall synthesis. Um, they are bacterial static and bactericidal. 
but they are more bacterial cytal. They break down the cell wall, and that ultimately leads to the bacterial the bacteria um, rupturing and destruction of the actual um, cells. So they are bacterial cytal more so than anything else. Um, as far as pharmacokinetics goes, you're going to have very limited pharmacokinetic uh, content on your exam. But for penicillin specifically, especially the very early formulations like penicillin G and penicillin B, you want to make sure you know that any kind of gastric acid secretion can really limit the absorption of the medication. Um, so it's very hard for them to be absorbed in PO form. So a lot of those medications are injectable. The utility is very limited. Um, the only times you're really going to see these used is for bacteria that are really easily treated. Um, bacteria like strep throat, a lot of times will use penicillin injections. Um, and that's one of the main indications for these medications. Uh, syphilis, penicillin injections, very commonly used with these type of medications. Um, but other than that, there's not a whole lot of indications for um, this, uh, this part of the beta-lactam class. Something that they like to test on a lot as far as adverse reactions go is specifically with penicillin G, the benzathin formulation. It can only be given intramuscularly. And if it is given to anybody through IV, it will kill them. So very important. Um, sometimes they'll ask you about the administration of the medication. Question? Sorry, I'm signing the attendance sheet. Can you repeat which one is only IM? Uh, I put it on there, but it's penicillin G benzathin, the one that says IM only. And then if you go to side effects and contraindications, mm -hmm. it says that if it's administered um, IV, it can cause death. Oh, thank you. All right. So all the uh, medications in the beta-lactam class present, and you're going to see this a lot, that the medications within the class are all going to have very similar side effects and drug interactions. But there's a lot of them that are singled out within the class because they cause very specific adverse effects or drug reactions. Um, and similarly, some of the medications within the class have very specific use cases that don't apply to the other medications in the class. So those are things that you really want to pinpoint on because they're going to be important for test questions, the pants, um, and also for clinical practice. So as far as uh, drug reactions for pretty much all the beta-lactams, um, rashes, and normally we don't worry about rashes, but specifically sometimes I like to ask you about the description of the rash, and in the case of beta-lactams, it's a morbilliform rash. Um, they can also develop erythema multiforme, Steven Johnson syndrome, and toxic epidermal necrolysis. All right. That can happen with really any medication, um, but penicillins is one of them that you should have kind of at the forefront of your mind, um, as well as some other ones that we'll talk about later in regards to that. When you see oral and vaginal candidiasis, all that's telling you is that any, pretty much any antibiotic can cause destruction of normal flora in the body and can predispose you to development of uh, oral and vaginal candidial infections as a result of destruction of the normal flora. What's another infection that works similarly in this way? As a result of antibiotic use? C. diff, okay? So all of these medications can cause C. diff. Any antibiotic can cause C. diff. Um, some of them are more likely to cause it than others, and some of them for some reason are just more tested than others, but any medication can give it to you. So when you see that in the adverse effects, I mean, don't worry about committing it to memory. Um, it's something that could be associated really to any medication. Um, and we'll talk about the ones that you really want to know because they're the ones that they're going to likely test you on. So 
So they like to use clindamycin. That's the big one. Yeah. So every C. diff question has clindamycin in it. Um, it's so much so that I'm legitimately paranoid about ever prescribing uh, clindamycin. Uh, I hate prescribing. Every time I prescribe it, I'm like, I oh, just killed somebody. They're going to get C. diff. They're going to go to the hospital. I'm literally terrified of prescribing it, and it's completely fine. Um, but it's, they, they strike fear into you for it. And all the test questions are about C. diff. I mean, uh, clindamycin for C. diff. So a lot of antibiotics, including beta-lactams, um, they inhibit the effects of oral birth control, um, which is super important because if you're ever, they just lock us in here. Nice. Um, because if you're ever treating somebody who's on OCPs and they're on antibiotics, they may get pregnant, and then yeah, it's kind of your bad, right? You, you didn't tell them, hey, start using a condom because your OCPs are not going to be very effective. So beta-lactams are part of that class. You probably won't ever be tested on that, um, but you probably will be um, having some upset patients if you forget about that. And if you have trouble remembering it, you just tell your patients. Most of these medications are a few days. Um, when in doubt, tell them to use secondary form of contraception during intercourse on antibiotics. The same way I tell all my patients who are taking antibiotics to not consume alcohol. Very good rule of thumb when you're giving patient education. Um, so as far as medications to avoid, the, the big one that I want you guys to know is avoiding the use of beta-lactams in patients who you suspect have mononucleosis. Mononucleosis is a what? Virus. The viral infection with what virus? All right, cool. So patients who, and they love testing this, and it legitimately happens all the time. I've only diagnosed mono like four times, and three of them was because we thought it was strep, and it came in penicillin, and they came back with a rash, and I was like, nope, it's mono. So you know, a lot of times you diagnose people because you give them a penicillin, and they get a rash. Um, so in real life, that happens all the time. It's not that big of a deal. Um, but in... Your pants questions are going to want you to avoid giving penicillins when it's mono. So be aware of that and be ready for test questions on that for sure. Uh, there's a lot of medications that can um, that can affect or inactivate uh, penicillin antibiotics. I don't think it's super high yield to memorize. You know the use of uh, chlorophenicol, macrolides, um, methotrexate, or tetracyclines. It's, I don't think it's super high yield because a lot of times you're not giving these medications together um, for the most part. So I wouldn't worry too much uh, about memorizing that or committing it to memory. Um, but it is important to keep in mind. So moving on, uh, we have another class of penicillin, which are the amino penicillins. And these are some of the medications that we're probably more used to seeing and prescribing, like amoxicillin, um, ampicillin, and then you're going to see some combination medications like ampicillin and sulbactam. Anytime you see a medication that has two names to it, especially within the beta-lactam class, like uh, augmentin clavulanate or ampicillin sulfactum or um, piperacillin tazobactam, uh, does anybody know the reason why there's an additional medication on it? Anyone? Huh? Resistance. No. Resistance. So, so a lot of bacteria... A lot of bacteria produce enzymes, right? Uh, penicillins have been around for a very long time. So but over time, bacteria, a lot of it has produced, and this is why we don't primarily use the initial classes of penicillins anymore. Um, they develop what's called beta-lactamase enzymes or penicillinase enzymes. And those are enzymes that literally break down the antibiotic and make them ineffective. So the combination medications that you see that have two names to them within this class 
not all the medications with two names to them do this, but ampicillin sulbactam, augmenting clavulanate. That second agent is meant to counteract that enzyme and prevent it from breaking down the antibiotic so that the antibiotic can work more effectively. So um, anytime you're having that, you're going to have an increased spectrum of coverage with the antibiotic. The antibiotic's going to work better for, um, for its indication, and it's going to be more effective and have less likely chance of having resistance to it. The adverse effects are very, very much the same. Um, the one I want you to know that is different is ampicillin. Ampicillin is not a medication that we prescribe often, and the reason we don't prescribe it often is because it does the exact same thing as amoxicillin, and amoxicillin does not give you diarrhea, uh, or it's not as likely to give you diarrhea. So ampicillin has a very, very high incidence of causing diarrhea in patients. Um, you can almost guarantee they're going to get diarrhea if they take ampicillin. What's another medication we talked about that can almost guarantee you get diarrhea? You're going to get tested on it soon? Colchicine. Yes, colchicine. All right? So every medication can cause nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, but there's some that are almost always going to cause it, and for that reason, they're almost always going to be tested about their ability to cause diarrhea. Um, again, C. diff colitis, the vaginal yeast and candidal infections, those are things that can happen with many different antibiotics. Um, and the avoidance of mononucleosis is just going to apply to all of the beta-lactam-related um, antibiotics. As far as hypersensitivity goes, a, a lot of people say that they're allergic to penicillins. Um, I think the last study they did is like only 10% of patients who have a documented penicillin allergy actually have a penicillin allergy. Um, so a lot of people don't actually have them. The worst part about diagnosing yourself with a penicillin allergy or having someone tell you you have it is that 10% of patients who have a penicillin allergy also have an allergy to cephalosporins. Um, so you can imagine that if you say you're penicillin allergic, your options for antibiotic coverage are going to be like super limited. Uh, and even though there's only 10% cross-reactivity, I would never in my life prescribe a cephalosporin to somebody with a penicillin allergy, just because uh, from a medical legal standpoint, you know, somebody has a documented allergy in your chart, you give them a medication you know might give them a hypersensitivity reaction, and you're not keeping them there long enough to monitor them, which in the urgent care we never do, or in the ED you usually don't, um, then you're putting yourself in a bad spot. So um, just something to keep in mind. In clinical practice, you see a lot of people give cephalosporins to patients who are penicillin allergic. Even though it says 10%, the real number is getting closer to like 3%. It's really, really low. Um, but it happens. And if you're unlucky, it'll happen to you the one time you do it. I don't do it at all. <laughs> um, so specifically, when you guys see, um, and this is something that when you guys have Dr. Hernandez in the, um, in the summer, he's going to talk to you a lot about. When you see medications, and there's really cool tricks to this kind of stuff to help you, when you see medications with two names, ampicillin sulbactam, piperacillin tazobactam, all those medications with two names, they all cover anaerobes. Yeah, they all cover anaerobes. So all those medications with the additional substance added to it covers anaerobes. Um, unfortunately, there's always an exception to the rule to make your life a little bit difficult. And that's going to be the one for Bactrim, which is trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. It does not cover, yeah, that, I'm sorry, I messed that up. Butchered. Um, it does not cover anaerobes. Okay. But augmentin, which is amoxicillin, clavulanate, piperacillin, tazobactam, all those medications with two names on them cover anaerobes. 
And that's why when you guys see, you know, like when you guys are doing an OSCE or something and they ask you, what antibiotic are you going to put the patient on when you admit them? You guys usually say something like, Banco because it covers everything. No, Banco doesn't cover everything. Banco is actually very limited in what it covers. It covers it covers MRSA. That's it. But you do Banco with what? Ceftriaxone, which is very pretty broad spectrum, and it covers a lot of uh, covers some anaerobes. It covers um, limited pseudomonal coverage, not much. But a lot of people say like Piptazone back and and Banco. That's the big one, which covers anaerobes, MRSA, and pseudomonas which literally covers everything, and then you don't have to worry anymore. You just put them on that, and you can't be wrong, right? So um, that's something to keep in mind. That trick is really helpful to kind of identify what medications are going to help with anaerobes. Um, what are the medications you guys know that work really well for anaerobes? Which one? Metronidazole. So that's why a lot of times when you guys are doing, like, GI stuff, when you guys did GI and the antibiotics, and GI always had... Metro as a part of the treatment, like something, something, something plus Metro. It's because the Metro pretty much mainly only covers, as far as bacteria goes, anaerobes. Um, so that's why you guys are adding that to a lot of your treatment plans. You're like, oh, I'll do a fluoroquinolone and Metro. Because you're adding now coverage for anaerobes. So make sure you guys, as we go, start building those buckets. I tried to give you some stuff later to help you already have that formed, but um, that's going to be the stuff that you need to practice as we go. Um, let me see if there's anything else we need for the amino penicillins. Let's see. Sogmentin. So as far as indications go, um, one big thing that you guys get tested on all the time is like dog bites, animal bites, cat bites. Um, what, what bacteria is usually associated with that? Pasteurella. Pasteurella, okay. So Pasteurella multicida. So the treatment of choice for all those patients and the drug of choice is always going to be um, augmentin. Um, and why do you think that's the case, knowing what we've already talked about? Because anaerobes, right? Mm -hmm. So that's another thing that you guys can do too. Sometimes when you're doing like ID questions, you don't remember something like, oh, what bacteria is this? But you may get a clue on the bacteria by knowing what antibiotics treat that. So if they tell you a patient's taking X medication, you know by that medication what pathogen might have been targeted by the antibiotic. So yeah. Augmentin covers anaerobes and patients who um, have cat bites, dog bites, or human bites. Um, and human bites, important to remember, can also be from like punching injuries to a tooth or something. Uh, Augmentin is usually the initial choice, right? So that's an important indication to remember that's very specific. Um, so ampicillin sulbactam, we already talked about it, increased anaerobic coverage. So if you just remember that the dual medications, the two names, are going to increase the anaerobic activity. Um, that, that will save you from having to memorize all these things. And same idea with Augmentin. Both of them increase anaerobic activity. The addition of that second medication makes them um, able to penetrate the cell walls of anaerobic bacteria as well. And that's pretty much it for the amino penicillins. What are some indications you guys remember for amoxicillin, just plain amoxicillin? Here. Ear infections, otitis media, so that's a big one. Otitis media is um, a really big one for, for it. Um, that's pretty much it. Amoxicillin, um, penicillin in general, we said syphilis was big, and also um, if you're doing a confirmed strep, the penicillin injection, you know, so syphilis and, and, um, and strep throat, that first class of penicillins, 
amoxicillin, we talked about otitis media, and then the combination medications, we talked about anaerobic coverage, so dog bites, cat bites, things like that. And don't freak out when we're talking about this stuff because I'm not going to be testing you on all those indications. I just think it's important to kind of put it, put it together. Um, so then you have more penicillins, and these penicillins we're going to get into are going to be even more um, resistant to beta-lactamases, which means that they're going to work even better to not be broken down by the enzymes produced by bacteria that are trying to neutralize the action of the penicillin medications. Um, and within there, I went ahead and divided it. There are some anti-pseudomonal medications that are going to work well against pseudomonas. And pseudomonas is one of the bacteria we talked about that you need to know every medication that can target it so that you know every possible treatment for a patient who suffers from a pseudomonal infection. Is it common for uh, in very specific patient populations, like what? Immunocompromised. Immunocompromised, right? So all immunocompromised patients are at risk for multi um, uh, multi drug involvement in infections. Would that include hospital bound patients? Like that adds a whole other layer to it right. because you tr a lot of times you're treating so. The bacteria is one thing, and then where they got the bacteria is another thing. So hospital-acquired infections usually more difficult to treat, usually treated more aggressively than community-acquired. So if I had a patient with a hospital-acquired MRSA infection, I'd be very hesitant to be like, well, let's try Bactromerdoxy and see how you do. Um, I'd be much more reluctant to do that as opposed to somebody who may have gotten in the community. Sure. I'd be much more willing to attempt treatment outpatient with like an oral um, MRSA drug. But yeah, diabetics, huge. So diabetics, when they have foot infections, you need to be very selective on your antibiotic choice because you literally need to cover for pseudomonas, anaerobes, and MRSA in pretty much every diabetic patient with like diabetic foot ulcers or diabetic you know, cellulitis of the lower extremity. You need to target all those bacteria. Um, and then the hard part is selecting the medications because you have to know not only which ones target those bacterias, but what's, how can you get there with the least amount of medications. Because you may be able to prescribe one medication that covers pseudomonas, one that covers MRSA, or one that covers anaerobes, and put them on three. But the more medications we add to a regimen, the more likelihood of interactions and adverse effects. So usually, you can knock them out with like two medications, um, which is something that I want you guys to be good at by the time we're done with going over antibiotics. So very, very important is to pick out the anti-pseudomonal medications. Um, and that's usually kind of easy because you guys are used to just saying, oh, piperacillin, tazobactam, <coughs> tacrocillin, tazobactam. And the reason you're saying that is because those medications have that added benefit of having pseudomonal coverage. So those medications that you hear used all the time as empiric treatment, the reason that they do that for the penicillins is because they offer pseudomonal coverage. Um, that's why you're not using Augmentin plus Vanco. You're using piperacillin, or tacrocillin, which are the two big ones. There's a third medication here, um, which is uh, carbencillin. I'm not going to test you guys on that. It's not commonly used. So for anti-pseudomonal penicillins, you need to know piperacillin and tacrocillin. So, and you also see piperacillin and tacrocillin, tazobactam, and clavulanate. All that means is that they now have the benefit of what? Which, uh, I heard two different things. Anaerobic coverage. So the tacrocillin and the piperacillin individually cover pseudomonas. They're anti-pseudomonal penicillin medications. Addition of the 
um, of the Sobactum or the Cavlane is going to make them work well against anaerobes. So you've covered now two of the most concerning, and the only one that's missing is what? MRSA, which is why you add Banco, which is why we always say, oh, potato Banco. Done, everything's covered, we're good. That's usually impaired treatment, pending blood cultures, yeah. blood cultures, or you're just panicking and don't know what to do, and you're like, I'm doing it. Yeah. <laughs> Not all of them. Which one can be used? So, Augmentin and all those first penicillins. So, any medication that's administered. No, no, I know, but antipsychotic. Oh, those antipsychotic are used in patients. Yeah. And most of your pseudomonal patients, unless they're mild infections, are going to be treated on a um, um, on an inpatient basis, um, especially if it's hospital required. Um, so, but yeah, those those medications are used inpatient. Vancos, inpatient, Fibrocetin, Hazelbactum, those are all inpatient medications. There are some outpatient anti-pseudomonal medications that we'll talk about later, like fluoroquinolones and things like that, uh, but these are inpatient medications. So that's important to know for the anti-pseudomonals. Um, the other thing that's really important to know, um, and again, the medications that stand out is for specific indications, dicloxacillin, which is the first one on the list. Dicloxacillin, for some reason or another, they prefer it in patients who are suffering from mastitis. Um, so women lactating, feeding babies, they'll always ask you what antibiotic are you going to use, um, and they want you to go with dicloxacillin. Um, there's a lot of medication choices you can use. What's the most common bacteria that causes mastitis? Staph aureus. Very easily, uh, most of the time it's methicillin sensitive. A lot of times not related to MRSA. So usually it can be treated with a lot of different medications, but dicloxacillin is the one that they always love to ask on. Um, and if you look on up to date or whatever the case is, it's listed as the first line treatment over amoxicillin or any of the other um, antibiotics. Other than that, I'm trying to see if there's anything else that is of extreme importance. So the uh, oxacillin and nafcillin have the highest risk of causing um, hypersensitivity hepatitis. I'm not going to test you guys on that. Um, that was in the, because uh, I, I cross-referenced also when I was doing the chart, your lectures from ID that you're going to have in the summer because I wanted you guys to be able to use this chart in your summer lecture. So there was a lot of things that he included in there that weren't in the farm stuff, and I put them in there, and that's one of them, um, as well as the ticrocillin, piperacillin, um, having a, the highest risk of immune um, thrombocytopenia. Um, he includes a lot of things that he, he sees from his clinical practice and that he's found in research, um, but not necessarily something that you're going to see high yield on the pants. Um, so those two... I'm not going to test you guys on. I just want them to be there so you have it already there for when you do your ID lectures. Does anybody have any questions so far? Yes. I have a question. Yeah. Can you repeat again what you said about Sozin and Tementin? It covers pseudomonas and what else? It's anti-pseudomonal coverage, but the, the ones that have the second, either the clavulanate or the sulbactam, you're adding on anaerobic coverage. So all those dual name medications are adding on anaerobic coverage in addition to the anti-pseudomonal properties.
what did you say was the, the, uh, the two name uh, antibiotic that, um, that you said normally they cover uh, animals, but you said one of them doesn't? Yeah, so Bactrim, trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole is one of the big exceptions to the rule of the medications that sound like they have two names um, and two, two different medications and one that are both antibiotics. It does not cover anaerobes, that one specifically, but all the other ones do. So we're going to move out of the um, penicillins, okay, and it's important to remember we're still covering beta-lactams, so all these medications are still beta-lactams but we're going to move on to cephalosporins. Um, cephalosporins are particularly annoying because you have five generations of cephalosporins. Um, and then within each of the five generations of cephalosporins, you have multiple different medications. So knowing which ones to use where is extremely important. Um, and we're going to work right now on limiting the amount of stuff that you have to memorize. So a first rule of thumb is, as you start from first generation and work your way up, you're increasing your gram-negative coverage. So a first generation cephalosporin is significantly less likely to cover pseudomonas than a fourth gen cephalosporin. And in fact, they do not. Yeah. As you go up in generations of cephalosporin, you improve your gram-negative coverage. Would it be more effective for positive Repeat that. Would it be more effective to treat positive? Yes. So in addition, the earlier cephalosporins have good gram-positive coverage. So like a first-gen cephalosporin has really good gram-positive coverage. But the gram-positive coverage doesn't get worse as you increase. So you increase your gram-negative, but your gram-positive is still good as you go up. Why use a first-gen? Because you might have a patient who has a gram-positive infection, that's like a methicillin, like a, somebody with a cellulitis. Why would you treat them with a medication that treats pseudomonas if it's probably stopped? Now you, that's how you create resistance to antibiotics. So you want to use the least potent medication that's the most narrow spectrum that's going to work for what you suspect. So if somebody has a, an infection with, um, you know, what you think is, uh, you know, like an otitis media, and you're like, oh, I have to cover for Moraxella, Haemophilus, these pathogens, why would you want to go with like a big gun that's going to cover pseudomonas when that infection's 99% of the time not going to be pseudomonal? So that's why you would use the early gen. Or if somebody has a UTI, what's the most common pathogen in a UTI? E. coli, which is it is gram negative. But E. coli is one of the gram negative bacterias that's pretty easily treated. Not a whole lot of resistance to E. coli. So you wouldn't want to use like an anti pseudomonal medication when you can use like a first or second gen cephalosporin that'll treat it just fine. So that's why you would start on those lower classes. So as you go up in generations of cephalosporins, you increase gram-negative coverage. You do not start covering any pseudomonal pathogens until you get to third and fourth gen um, cephalosporins. That's when you start having some anti-pseudomonal coverage is in third and fourth gen cephalosporins. So you can have some pseudomonal coverage in specific medications, which we'll talk about now. But fourth generation, very good pseudomonal coverage with cefepime. Cefepime is the only medication you really um, need to worry about with uh, fourth gens. Ceftonir is important, but cefepime is the one you're most likely going to be asked on when it comes to um, pseudomonal coverage for fourth gens.
You will use septinir clinically, but it's not often tested. And they still keep the, the potency against negatives? Against gram positives. Yeah. For gram positives. It increases your gram negative up to the point where it will work on pseudomonas. It works well. So you increase your gram negative coverage, but your gram positive coverage is still good. Yeah, it's still good. So everything except You're not covering anaerobes, but you're also not covering MRSA. You have good gram positive coverage, but not against MRSA. So guys, whenever a medication covers MRSA, covers uh, Bacteroides fragilis, which is an anaerobe, or covers Pseudomonas, I will let you know for sure. So it has good gram positive coverage, but not MRSA. Repeat your question. For what? For, for Gen 4. For so, the generation. What property specifically are you asking about? When you're saying about that they have, or are you, okay, are you saying in general all of the um, cephalosporins have good coverage for gram positive but not for MRSA? Or only when you start? Yes. So all cephalosporins, starting from first gen and working your way up, have good gram positive coverage. But as you increase in generation, you increase your gram negative coverage. When you get to fourth gen, you start having really good anti-pseudomonal coverage. But there's also a third generation cephalosporin, which is ceftazidine, that also covers pseudomonas. Um, and Dr. Hernandez always used to tell us it's like the Tasmanian devil. Ceftazidine has the word Taz in the middle. And Tasmanian devil, if you guys ever watch cartoons, very destructive. So that's how we used to remember that it was the third gen that had pseudomonal coverage. Very, it was very helpful to me, and I will never, I will never forget. It. All right. So, really quickly, the chart when it's going over this gen, it says most gram positive coverage. So don't get ahead of yourself, because I'm just getting into the exceptions to the rules, which is what you're about to say. So we said that as you increase cephalosporin coverage, you you get more what? Negative. More gram negative coverage. But all cephalosporins have relatively good gram positive coverage. But none of them, from first to fourth that we've talked about, cover MRSA. All right? So I feel like everybody's got that down. Now, here's the messed up part where people just start throwing things in there to make your life more difficult. Fifth-gen cephalosporins, which is one medication you need to know, which is septaroline, covers MRSA, but does not cover pseudomonas. Yeah. So the fifth-generation cephalosporin, septaroline, has the best gram-positive coverage out of any cephalosporin. Okay, it covers MRSA. But the gram-negative coverage falls off from fourth gen and you lose your pseudomonal coverage. Okay, so I'm gonna recap all of this one more time really quickly. Okay, cephalosporins. <laughs> Everybody's just gonna rip their hair out. Guys, <laughs> this takes a lot of repetition to get this stuff down. So, as you work your way up from first gen to second gen to third gen to fourth gen, your gram negative coverage gets better. Okay? All of them have relatively decent gram positive coverage. Your. Before you And first generation are the best, have the best gram positive they have good gram-positive coverage. Gram-positive coverage maintains itself relatively consistent throughout the generation. Yeah. So it just remains the same. Right. So as you work your way up, 
you're getting better. You start getting pseudomonal coverage at you start at third, specifically with Tasmanian devil. But you don't like the you don't like the memory aid? Oh, Fourth generation cephalosporins also cover pseudomonas. When you get to fifth gen, you lose you lose pseudomonas. But you get MRSA. Okay? You lose your gram negative. You lose your pseudomonal coverage. Can they still treat not so aggressive gram negative? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They still have decent gram negative coverage, just not anti pseudomonal. So, as far as anaerobic bacteria goes for cephalosporins, we have not talked about any cephalosporin that covers anaerobes, okay? But there are two that do. It's not important necessarily to remember the generation, um, but the way that Dr. Hernandez always taught us to remember it, which I'll never forget either, um, is a fox sipping tea. And that's because cefoxetin and cefotetin are the two cephalosporins that have anaerobic coverage. That's just an outlier? That's just an outlier. That's just an outlier. The other cephalosporins have very limited activity against anaerobes. Okay. So, the buzzards are coverage Yep. Yep. No, because when, you, when you're treating somebody, if you have a really high concern about exposure to very concerning gram-negative bacteria, you want to have anti-pseudomonal coverage on board. And if you have concern for MRSA because somebody has either risk factors or some kind of infection that has pus in it, which is likely going to be MRSA, you want to cover for MRSA. So when I'm treating somebody with a skin infection, that has pus in it, like an abscess, I'm treating for MRSA every time because it's the most common bacteria that's going to cause pure an abscess or pus drainage. Um, in diabetic patients who have really bad infections, I'm always covering with anti-pseudomonas. So, yeah, you want to know more or less do they have some gram-positive or gram-negative, but by knowing which ones cover MRSA, anaerobes, and pseudomonas, you're going to have a really good idea of what else they also cover, and you limit the amount of stuff you have to memorize. Because you have to memorize every medication. Oh, this one has some gram-positive, this one has some gram-negative. And the other thing you use to your advantage is you're always going to remember some indications of medications. Like you know that amoxicillin treats uh, ear infections. And if you know the ear infection bacteria, then you know, hey, this thing definitely works for some gram-positive bacteria. It has really good gram-positive coverage. So that's the way you kind of put it together. Because trying to memorize everything like that is impossible. Yeah. So, cefoxetin and cefotetin are the two cephalosporins, the fox and the T, that treat anaerobes. The only two. Okay. They're not going to be your primary choices, um, but they are the two cephalosporins that do it. You have a lot of other medications you'd rather use than those, but they have coverage and you should know that. <laughs> cefoxetin and cefotetin. And they're in the chart. So if you look under uses over here, I literally broke down everything we talked about um, right here. So first to fourth gen, progressively increases gram-negative coverage. Second gen, um, the second gen, the fox and the T, 
cover B fratch, which is an anaerobe, the, the worst anaerobe. And then you have your third gen, ceftazidine specifically, cover pseudomonas, and your fourth gen, cefepime, is going to cover pseudomonas. Ceftinir does have some pseudomonal coverage, but not nearly as good as um, uh, cefepime. Cefepime is your uh, fourth gen of choice for anti-pseudomonal coverage. And then your fifth gen is going to be your most gram-positive coverage, which is MRSA. All right? So I, I have it all outlined on there. I'm not just expecting you to memorize it or take notes on it. Okay. So cephalosporins aren't usually used as first-line treatments for pretty much anything. Um, you're never going to go in a book and see first-line and see a cephalosporin. It's very uncommon. Um, but they are used in patients who either have resistance or hypersensitivity to other medications. Uh, yeah, allergies to other medications. So, As far as adverse effects go, you're going to have all of the same things you can have with um, the other beta-lactam medications. But there are some things you need to know about specific medications. So cefepime, out of all of your beta-lactams, is going to have the highest risk of causing seizures. And that's important to know. Um, because patients who are at high risk for seizures, um, it's the medication you should avoid if you don't have to use it. You should look for alternatives. Uh, ceftriaxone and cefepirazone. And cefepirazone is not something commonly tested, so you guys could just focus on ceftriaxone because it is used extremely commonly. can cause biliary sludge, which is essentially a thickening of the um, biliary secretions, which can produce a... Um, a cholecystitis-like presentation. So patients, obviously, who already suffer from, like, gallstones and things like that, you can cause them to have a cholelithiasis-like episode um, through the use of antibiotics like rosefin or ceftriaxone. Do not worry about remembering cefalperazone because it's not uh, commonly used. I'm not going to test you on it. And then the cephalotetin and cephalperazone was an anecdote from Dr. Hernandez's lecture. I'm also not going to test you on that either. But it, um, there are two medications that, and, and again, they're not commonly prescribed, but they can cause inhibition of vitamin K in, in worsened patients who have bleeding conditions um, and can also produce disulfiram-like reactions. Um, but again, that one part with the cephalotetin and cephalperazone, I'm not going to test you on. That's... Um, something from Dr. Hernandez's lecture that I just wanted you guys to have there for when you go to his lecture. All right, so the next class, um, I guess we'll work through um, the beta-lactams and then we'll take a break before moving forward. So monobactams, there's one class, uh, one class in there, and it's um, the monobactams, and the medication is called estriana. Um Dr. Hernandez has an awesome way to remember what this medication does. Um, and it's as tree in them, and you just think about a tree falling on your house. And that is a very negative experience. <laughs> this medication only covers... Gram negative. Gram negative. Right? So as tree in them, it's a tree falling on your house. It's a negative experience, covers gram negative. What's your worst gram negative? Pseudomonas. So one really important thing to know about um, the uh, Astreonam or the monobactam class in general, which is the only medication in it, um, is that all the other medications, we talked about patients who have penicillin allergies having cross-reactivity with all the other beta-lactams. The only exception to that is 
monobactams. If you have a penicillin allergic patient, they're not going to have cross-reactivity with monobactams or with estriana. So it's a really good choice for penicillin allergic patients who require a beta-lactam antibiotic. Um, of course, there's always an exception to every rule, and that does not fail us here um, because ceftazidine specifically does have cross-reactivity with estriana. Am I going to test you on that? No. So for my exam, just knowing that there's no cross-reactivity is completely fine. Because again, ceftazidine is not a commonly prescribed cephalosporin. So do not worry about it. Yeah. So as Trianem, which is the only medication in the monobactam family, which is a subclass of beta-lactams, um, the memory aid that we always use to remember what this medication is used for is thinking about a tree as tree and M falling on your house and it being a very bad experience or a negative experience and only having coverage for gram-negative pathogens. Okay. And you said this is the one that's good for patients that have penicillin allergy, but in real life, except for septazidine? So, except for septazidine, there's no other cross with any other beta-lactam antibiotic. So if you have allergies to beta-lactams, you can still, or not to beta-lactams, but to penicillin or cephalosporins, you can still take estriana. The next medication class we're going to talk about is carbapenems. Um, carbapenems are, are the big guns. So if you ever see somebody in a carbapenem, they probably have some kind of uh, very severe infection. There's many medications in the carbapenem class. Um, I will tell you that all of those medications are important. Um, you do need to know all of them because you may be tested on any one of them. <laughs> So this is another medication that has really good coverage against Pseudomonas and also against anaerobes. So it covers Pseudomonas and it covers BFRAGE. The gram-positive coverage is a little bit limited. So if you ever used one of these and you were concerned about gram-positive, you'd have to add on a secondary agent to cover for MRSA. The only time you're using this medication is in patients who have multi-organism um, infections. And again, anytime you're using one of these really strong medications that covers for pseudomonal pathogens, MRSA, um, anaerobes. You're doing that because you're suspecting multiple um, infectious causes. If not, you'd be using something much more narrow spectrum targeted to their infection. Wait, but you just said this one doesn't cover MRSA. It doesn't cover MRSA. Okay. So I'm saying whenever you're using medications that have like very wide-ranging coverage against MRSA, pseudomonas, or anaerobes, or multiple of them at the same time, usually you're doing that for patients who are like critically ill or have very severe infection. Uh, which is the case with carbapenems. So the biggest thing that you want to know about these medications, they all decrease the seizure threshold. So there's an increased risk of seizures. Um, significantly more, because again, that can happen with all beta-lactams, but it does it significantly more than any other medication in the class, in the, in the whole beta-lactam class. And specifically, um, imipenem has the highest risk of causing seizures. That's a very commonly tested topic. Uh, vancomycin is the last medication here. It's not a beta-lactam technically, but it works very similarly. So I lumped it together into the beta-lactam category because it also works on inhibiting um, cell wall and in interfering with cell wall synthesis. So I left it in there. Um, 
vancomycin covers what? MRSA and gram, pretty much any gram positives. Okay. The two biggest indications that you're going to see vanco used for is MRSA infections and what's the other one? C diff. Okay. When you take it for C diff, how do you take it? Why? It doesn't get absorbed in the GI tract, so it works where it needs to work. Okay. IV vanco and the same for the same reason you would never treat somebody with a MRSA skin infection with PO vanco because it's not going to get absorbed, right? So it's not going to do anything. So for infections, other than C. diff, you're doing IV. For C. diff, you're doing PO. Okay. The biggest adverse effect we learned about with Banco is what? Redman syndrome. Redman syndrome. Which is an allergy? No. No. Okay. It's due to acute histamine release. It's not an allergy. The patient can continue taking Banco. The patient can take Banco again in the future. You don't stop giving them Banco. You do what? You slow the infusion. That's it. So for Banco, your commonly tested topics are going to be used for C. diff in what form? VO. Used for what else? Via what route? IV. Okay. Adverse effects, big one? Managed how? Slow the infusion. That's it. That's essentially all you're going to get tested on with Banco for the most part. Yeah, very similar. But when they ask you about Redman syndrome, it's almost always on a test question, you're going to be able to Banco. It's going to be a Banco question. But yeah, I can have them with patients for taking more things. So we are going to take a 10-minute break.
your TSH production. Right. That was my first thought. MRI. Right. They did. There's not a whole lot of other things. Right? I mean, obviously, I'd like to take a few of these, but that will be a go. If you like them, I'll give you more. Yes, yes. Okay, I've also, I mean, you could develop a sensitivity to the vaccine. Right, that's what I was But you would, there's not much you can do, you can just change it. Right. And then you can also have, like, I don't know, everybody's ever focused on thyroid. Yeah, but enough. Right. It could be. Because that way, it's sweet and added with fruit. Hold on, let me get them. They've done it for our
it just didn't like, I was like, okay, maybe, you know, like, here it's just, like, you know, which one, except for the third generation, and, 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 and,
the medication is used for a lot of different indications. The biggest ones you're going to see that you'll see it like either first line or top of the list is for atypical infections. Um, so atypical infections like what? Which one? I mean, Lyme is not wrong. Yeah, so Lyme is right. You can use it for Lyme. But mainly, there's other medications in the class that you might use a little more, like in the tetracyclines, are more likely first line than you would with like a Zithromax. Which one? You could use it for more Excella. So macrolides are kind of second line for upper. So anything you could use the penicillins for in terms of like uh, ear infections, sore throats, with strep, uh, macrolides are really good second alternatives for patients with penicillin allergies. So second line treatment for like altitis media that you might see or for strep pharyngitis, Zithromax is a really good second line. It's also used a lot in pneumonia. So patients who have pneumonia, um, you will not treat somebody with community acquired pneumonia with just uh, zithromycin. You usually use it in combination because azithromycin works, like we said, well against atypical bacteria. And which ones do we worry about in the lungs? You said it? Pepsia. Mycoplasm. Cool. What else? Pepsiella. Pepsiella, chlamydia, all those, right? So it covers for those pathogens, but you still need what's the most common cause of pneumonia? Strep pneumonia. Strep pneumonia. So you still need medications that work well against strep pneumonia. Strep pneumonia is what kind of bacteria? The gram positive. So that's why you might see people use things like augmentin and uh, macrolide. So like augmentin and azithromycin or acephalosporin and, and azithromycin. You're covering for the gram positive, which is the most common, strep, things like that. And then the atypical or the, the atypicals are being covered by the macrolides, the azithromycin. So very, very, very good for atypical coverage. Um, has pretty good gram-positive coverage and some gram-negative coverage as well. So it could be used second line in a lot of places. You would use penicillin-based antibiotics, like ear infections, sore throat, things like that. Uh, as far as adverse effects, the big ones you need to know, and you're going to get a lot of questions on adverse effects on macrolides, is going to be QT prolongation. Um, they are not the most QT prolonging drugs, but they do it. And specifically, azithromycin is actually, if you're going to use one, it's the best. It causes the least amount of QT prolongation, which is probably why it's one of the more commonly prescribed medications out of the class. Question. How long there's something like azithromycin? Z-Pax, they use for COVID, for example, and it's a virus. So they're used for COVID because people... Zithromax is essentially now, like you'll see people call it like vitamin Z because we literally use it for everything. And people have become accustomed to taking it for like common colds and viral infections. Um, it really had no indication for COVID, um, at least from a medical literature standpoint. But a lot of people are concerned that because they're getting pneumonia, they need to take an antibiotic for the pneumonia. But even with the pneumonia, most of the time it's, it was a viral pneumonia. It didn't really do much either. Um, so... The use case for it in viral infections is non-existent. Yeah. If you develop a secondary bacterial pneumonia, then you may need to treat it. Um, and azithromycin may or may not be the best option. There's a lot of other better options out there, actually. But most post-viral infections could be with like MRSA, or not MRSA, but like staph. So it would work, um, but so would a lot of other things.
Um, so QT prolongation is a big one. Photosensitivity uh, is another one. You see photosensitivity more with tetracyclines, which we're going to talk about next, uh, but it can happen with macrolides also. Hyperglycemia and hepatotoxicity are not extremely common, but they can happen. Um, C. diff can happen, but macrolides are not notorious for causing C. diff. Um, it's not one of their big, um, big concerns as far as uh, interactions go. So those are the big ones, QT prolongation and photosensitivity that you need to know. So some of the macrolides can cause hairy tongue, uh, yes, like hair on your tongue. Uh, again, not a common side effect, and also not commonly tested. <coughs> Contraindicated in pregnancy. Antacids can decrease the levels of the medication in the body, so that's important to know, and may be tested as well. I'm not going to test you guys on the digoxin and theophylline and phenytoin increasing serum levels of macrolides, um, just because I don't think it's, it's, it's extremely high yield. But the, uh, the antacids is really important because those are commonly used medications that can be done over the counter. A lot of people suffer from reflux, so there's a high likelihood you might run into that problem, so you need to know that. Okay, so aluminum and magnesium antacids will decrease serum levels of macrolides, so it may become less effective. So the other macrolides are going to have very similar um, indications. I'm trying to see if there's anything else that stands out specifically. So erythromycin specifically has a high incidence of causing diarrhea, um, more so than any of the other macrolides. So erythromycin and diarrhea is really important for you guys to keep that in mind. Um, but other than that, erythromycin has formulations that are in like topical forms. So uh, a lot of times you'll use azithromycin like ointments for um, like localized skin infections, conjunctivitis, things like that. Um, but again, that's not something that you're going to be tested on for, for farm. So clindamycin, um, clindamycin is an extremely important medication and you're going to get a lot of questions in regards to clindamycin. The, uh, the really important thing that you want to know about clindamycin that's good is that it covers MRSA. So you're going to get some anaerobic coverage, okay, um, including BFRAGE, and you're going to get MRSA coverage. That's the good. So when you ask, well, if you know, clindamycin is so bad and it causes C. diff, why do people use it? They use it because it's a really good antibiotic and it covers a lot of um, infections. And the other problem too is if you have somebody who has, let's say, like a dental infection or an oral infection and they're allergic to penicillins, what bacteria do you need to cover in the mouth? Candidiasis. Which one? Candidiasis. Candidiasis, you kind of see something to clue you into that, but right, just as far as like normal flora that you're concerned about routinely. Strep is one. Strep, what else? I hope not. You never know. You never know. You know what people are getting into these days, right? So what else? 
like, if you get bit by a dog, a cat, or a human, you worry about... Well, not, not a human, though. For, but what are there? Castrellas within the family of what type of organisms? Anaerobes. Anaerobic bacteria live in the mouth of all creatures. <laughs> so you need to cover anaerobic bacteria in the mouth. And if you have a dental abscess or something like that that has pus in it, you're also worried about coverage for staph, but specifically MRSA. Strep. I mean, people are worried about strep and seeding into the heart valves. Um, you're also worried about anaerobes. You're worried about MRSA. So a lot of times, the antibiotic of choice there okay, is going to be something like Augmented, which covers for anaerobes, and has good gram-positive coverage, but not MRSA. But if you can't use it because the patient's allergic to penicillin, you're kind of limited now on your options as to what to treat with. So clindamycin is a good alternative because it covers anaerobes, and it can be used outpatient. Um, so that's why it's used a lot. It's a really good antibiotic, and it covers for two huge pathogens that we worry about in a lot of different infections. So a lot of patients who are diabetic, um, and you're worried about anaerobes, and you're worried about um, MRSA, you can kill two birds with one stone with Clinda. So it's a really good antibiotic in that regard. The reason that you also need to know it is because it's the most notorious medication. For what? Yes, prophylaxis for endocarditis as well. Um, and again, especially it covers MRSA. It's also going to have some pretty good gram-negative coverage, but not great. Um, and it has anaerobic coverage. Uh, but also, as far as adverse effects go, C. diff is extremely important for you to know. Uh, patient education, counseling about taking it with probiotics and to follow up at the first sign of any diarrhea. Those are going to be your big things that you can get tested on. Also can cause QT prolongation, photosensitivity, all of the same um, things, but increased risk of an incidence of C. diff is going to be the big thing that you need to keep in mind. Okay, and then linazolate is the last medication that falls into this category um, that inhibits the 50S subunit on the ribosome. And this medication works well for MRSA, um, but it does not work as well for anaerobes as clindamycin does. So really good medication to use for patients who have um, hospital severe MRSA infections who are resistant to other treatments like vancomycin. So it's not your first-line treatment for MRSA, but for severe hospitalized patients who failed therapy, um, it's a really good alternative for MRSA coverage in the hospital setting. It's not tested on extremely often on pants questions, um, but if it is, it's going to be about its coverage for MRSA, its mechanism of action. Um, and then the other thing I would know, obviously, is um, uh, the thrombocytopenia, and that's pretty much it. I wouldn't worry too much about a lot of the other um, indications. Uh, much like MAOIs, you want to avoid tyramine-containing foods um, because of possibility of hypertensive crisis, but MAOIs are a medication that patients are usually on long-term, right? They're, they're used in, in management of chronic conditions. Uh, this is an antibiotic. When you're taking the antibiotic, you're probably going to be hospitalized. 
So you're kind of in control of the patient's diet at that point, which is why it's not as high of a yield as a topic, because you're not going to send the patient home necessarily on linazolid. So, you know, unless someone's bringing them tyramine-containing foods to the hospital while they're visiting, not really something to worry about too much, okay? Which is why I don't think it's super important to, to have that in mind. Next drug class is tetracyclines. Uh, tetracyclines are relatively short and sweet. Um, the medication names sound a lot like the class name. There's actually one medication in the drug class which has the same name as the drug class. So tetracycline is both the class of medications and also one of the antibiotics within the class, um, as well as doxycycline and minocycline. Work very similar to, um, to the macrolides and have very similar side effects in a lot of regards, but they bind instead of to the 50S subunit to the 30S subunit. And yes, you do need to know that. Um, you may get it on the pants, and you're definitely going to get it on my exam. So doxycycline um, and, and many of these macrolides one of the medications we talked about that covers MRSA and can be used for outpatient treatment of MRSA. So that's super important to know. The, the level of coverage is not as high as a lot of the other medications we talked about, um, but it works. When you guys think about doxycycline, whenever you hear about any really weird infection and you're not sure what to treat it with, the answer is, is usually doxycycline. So like Lyme disease, doxycycline. Um, some STDs, doxycycline. Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, doxycycline. Toxoplasmosis, doxycycline. So doxycycline works for a lot of weird diseases that are transmitted from different bugs. And it's a really good choice to pick as far as treatment goes for when you're not sure what to do. Because um, a lot of these other medications have very clear indications and doxy is like very, very, very widespread. So you need to know it covers MRSA and you need to know it's a really good choice for a lot of like zoonotic conditions uh, transmitted through like ticks um, and things like that. You have a question? Doxy, I prescribe all the time. Do you prescribe the monohydrate or the the one that we have in the machine, I don't even know. Because <laughs> yeah. that's the one I get bonuses on. Okay, so you don't specifically, like, like you know. Like, no. Okay. no. So, yeah, so Doxy is very, very, very commonly prescribed. Um, it, it covers for MRSA, so I use it a lot because of that. It has minimal adverse effects, so I use it a lot because of that. Um, and it covers a lot of weird infections that patient may or may not be suffering from. Um, and is a really good catch-all for a lot of different infections. They don't have very high anaerobic coverage. Um, it's, it's not extremely high um, anaerobic coverage. They have more gram-positive than gram-negative coverage. So you're not going to get any pseudomonal coverage or anything like that. So Sometimes you have to pair it with other medications. Like if, if I have a patient with an abscess or something, I'm treating them for MRSA, I, I'll use Doxy, I'll use Bactrim, I'll use one of those medications, but um, if you're worried about multi-organisms, doxycycline alone is not going to cut it. And doxycycline is also really good in a lot of ways that we said the macrolides were good. Atypical pneumonias, um, you know, all those atypical pneumonias will respond to doxycycline as well as azithromycin. They, they both work really well. And the mechanism of action is very similar, so that's why they have a lot of similarities in that regard.
You guys are also going to hear it asked a lot because it's the treatment of choice for like non-gonococcal sexually transmitted infections. So patients with chlamydia or your arthritis that's not related to gonorrhea, your antibiotic of choice is going to be doxycycline. And then the second choice will be a macrolide. What do you use for gonococcal STIs? Ceftriaxone. So that's why when you hear, um, you know, when somebody has, you know, penile or urethral discharge, they'll say, oh, you got to give them rocephin and you got to give them either azithromycin or doxycycline. It's because you're covering for gonorrhea with, with the ceftriaxone, mm -hmm. and you're covering for chlamydia with either azithromycin or with doxycycline. So photosensitivity is a lot more common with tetracyclines than they are with macrolides. Um, so it's like really important, like it's a real thing. So if you have somebody who's like outdoors a lot or works outdoors, you want to tell them to stay covered up, wear sunscreen. It's not like they can't go about their activities, but uh, one, if you got a better antibiotic that's you know not going to make them have to bundle up in the sun and wear sunscreen and do all these things that they may not do, then use it. But if you have to use this medication, make sure you tell them to um, wear sunscreen, cover up, and things like that to avoid the effects. Uh, very important adverse effect of the medication is staining of the teeth. Um, it can cause teeth discoloration, especially in pediatric patients um, and, you know, uh, in field development if you give it to a pregnant woman. So that's why you wouldn't give it in pregnancy and you wouldn't give it to young children. Do you need to know the exact age? No. Uh, just know pediatric patients, young pediatric patients, you want to avoid it due to the development of um, bone and teeth formation as well as staining of the teeth. A lot of these medications you want to give them on an empty stomach. The doxycycline itself um, is not necessarily impacted too much um, if, you, if you take it with food. The absorption is not, not going to be affected. You can take it with food, it's fine. And it helps with the nausea and vomiting. But the other medications in the class... When you take them by mouth, the acidity in the stomach can cause um, problems with the absorption. So you want to take it on an empty stomach if it's not doxycycline. So a good rule of thumb is just to tell everybody who's taking a tetracycline to take it on an empty stomach. Or to prescribe specifically doxycycline so you don't have to worry about it. So um, tigacycline is a newer, uh, it's one of the newer tetracycline medications that, that came on the market. It's really used for drug-resistant organisms. Um, it has a more broad spectrum and has better gram-negative coverage. Um, it still covers MRSA, and it's actually a little bit more effective for MRSA. Uh, but it's really only uh, saved for cases with very severe infections, hospitalized patients, and things like that. The next class of medications we're going to talk about is aminoglycosides. Um, and aminoglycosides, depending on what source you look at, um, it says they target the 30 or the 50 uh, ribosomal subunits. So it can have effects on both. Aminoglycosides cover for pseudomonas, so you need to be well aware of that uh, because it's going to be one of your treatment options that you can use as an adjunct for patients who you want to cover for really bad gram-negative infections consisting of pseudomonas.
What do you guys remember about aminoglycosides as far as adverse effects? Autotoxicity. Okay, that's one of the biggest ones. It can also, they can also cause nephrotoxicity, but autotoxicity seems to be the one that's uh, most often tested. So you want to know autotoxicity and nephrotoxicity. Um, and what are the medications cause the autotoxicity? Aminoglycosides, yeah. What else? It might. I'm not sure, though. Which was? Vanco can cause autotoxicity. Not one of the more commonly tested ones, but yeah, it can. Diuretics, but mainly loops. Loops mainly cause it. Loop diuretics mainly cause it. And what was another one? An aspirin. So obviously giving any of these medications together, like a loop diuretic with an aminoglycoside, is going to increase your risk. Or aspirin, a patient who's taking aspirin, loop diuretic, and you prescribe an aminoglycoside, I mean, it's going to be a rough day. A lot of times the the um, the damage is non-reversible. Patients can lose hearing. They can have permanent tinnitus. It's not just tinnitus. They, they also have like hearing impairment as well. I see if there's anything else. All right. Next medication class is going to be sulfonamides. Um, we've talked about sulfonamides in the past. Uh, we've talked about it for various indications. The mechanism of action is pretty unique. Um, none of the other antibiotics really work on inhibiting folate synthesis that we've covered, so it's important to know that it works on inhibiting folate synthesis. So if you're inhibiting folate synthesis, um, you're not going to use it in what? You're not going to use it in a pregnancy. Um, the medication has the word sulfa smack dab in the middle of it, which means that you're going to avoid it in patients who have allergies to sulfa. Fantastic. It's one of the medications that covers for MRSA, so that's one of the big reasons we use it. Um, it's very commonly used for UTIs as well. Um, UTIs are a little bit complicated when it comes to treatment. It's not one of those things where there's just like a first line. Um, UTIs can be treated with a lot of different medications. Bactrim is one of the ones that we commonly use. Uh, another really interesting indication for Bactrim that you have to know is that it's used for treating a specific type of pneumonia. Which one? Yeah, PCP. Yeah. So patients with AIDS, with pneumonia, it can be used as prophylaxis. It can also be used as treatment. So that's a really good indication to know. That's very unique. So a lot of medications we talked about can cause drug rashes and Steven Johnson syndrome. Uh, Bactrim has a very high, or it has a relatively high incidence of causing very severe skin reactions like Steven Johnson syndrome versus a lot of other antibiotics. So that's really important to know specifically with Bactrim. Uh, SJS, 10, erythema multiforme, you want to have that in mind. You want to avoid use in patients with warfarin um, because it, it, it is one of the medications that will cause some pretty significant risk of bleeds um, on patients that are taking warfarin. And another extremely important thing to keep in mind is that it's one of the medications that we talked about um, that can trigger a crisis of G6PD. They love to ask about that and all the G6PD causing medications. So this is not important for your test, but I think it's important just for clinical practice because this always confused me when I would see it. But sometimes a patient, like, they have a UTI and you give them Bactrim and normally, how long do you give Bactrim for for UTI? 
five, seven days. They can be anywhere from like three to 14. Usually we do like Snapdragon in the middle and we do like seven or five. Um, when you're treating them, they take the medication for like five or six days and then five or six days after that they come to you and they have like a crazy rash and they're like, what is this? And you're like, oh, are you taking any medications? They're like, no, they already finished the medication. But it's important to ask because sometimes the reaction can come after, like later on in the course of medication. So it's not always right after or right after initiation of treatment. Any questions? Got everybody looks fried. <laughs> this is awful, I'm sorry. We're gonna go over this multiple times and I promise you eventually it will be uh, hopefully second nature. Let me not make promises actually. Uh, promises I can't keep. So next medication class, which is extremely important, is fluoroquinolones. Okay? Fluoroquinolones are important um, because they cause a lot of really bad adverse effects. What are the big ones? Tendon rupture is huge, and QT prolongation, okay? So if you remember tendon rupture and QT prolongation, the, the black box warning I think is only for the um, tendon rupture, but QT prolongation is huge. Um, and it, it happens, and I've had, literally had a patient the other day who was on Cipro and had QT prolongation, was hospitalized, and then came to me after because they're like, my UTI is back. They gave it to her for an uncomplicated UTI and they ended up with uh, an arrhythmia. So it's not first line for most things. You, everyone right now is trying to avoid the use of fluoroquinolones. So I promise you your pants questions are probably going to be more about contraindications than anything else. Um, but you should still know why they're good. And the reason they're good is because they cover for pseudomonas. So certain types of infections like pneumonias that are severe, um, hospitalized patients with pneumonia, a lot of them are going to be on Levaquin. The other indication um, that is important is for pyelonephritis. So you don't use fluoroquinolones for an uncomplicated UTI. What makes it uncomplicated? No fever. No flank pain. What else? Not a man. Yes, so men are usually complicated. Yep. Off the get-go. And the other one, too, is like nausea, vomiting, systemic symptoms, right? So fever, nausea, vomiting. So if you have somebody who just has burning on urination frequency, you don't give them uh, fluoroquinolone. If you have somebody who has fever, back pain, nausea, vomiting, and you suspect polynephritis, fluoroquinolones are now one of the primary options for treatment. Um, and they have really good coverage against really concerning gram-negative bacteria like Pseudomonas. So you would use them in that case. You still have alternatives to it, but that's one case where you might use them over anything else. The other ones we talked about was severe pneumonia, and specifically Legionella pneumonia. It's also, if, when you're asked about indications, they ask you about Legionella, they ask you about pyelonephritis, and they ask you about patients in the ICU who have pneumonia. So those three big ones. So when you don't use it, we already talked about patients with QT prolongation. Um, it can cause hyperhypoglycemia, but that's not super high yield. They, they don't test you on that normally. You want to be very careful as well. Um, the certain medications in the class are considered respiratory, and other ones are not. So what I want you guys to know for my exam is to know for sure that levofloxacin is a respiratory fluoroquinolone. 
and you would use it preferably in patients who have pneumonia. So if somebody has a respiratory infection, a pneumonia, and you want to use it for a quinolone, you go with levofloxacin. If a patient has a pyelonephritis or a non-pulmonary infection, like skin or renal, you go with ciprofloxacin, which has the best anti-pseudomonal coverage in the class. So there's a lot of medications in the class, but I promise you the most commonly asked ones is going to be Cipro and Levofloxacin. You also might see, um, and this is not for your test, but you also might see Ofloxacin. Um, and Ofloxacin, really, we mainly use it in drop form for the ears. What's the most common pathogen for notitis externa? And that's why we use Ofloxacin, because it has anti-pseudomonal properties, because it's a fluoroquinolone. So, Things like that are helpful. If you remember, like, all right, don't you use these floxacins for the ears, and we use them because they cover for pseudomonas, you can probably apply that into later settings where you might want to cover for pseudomonas by knowing, hey, this class covers that. So making those connections is super important. Any questions? I feel terrible right now. <laughs> what am I doing to you guys? <laughs> all right. So we got 15 minutes and four medications, or five medications, but the last two are really quick. So really three medications. Metronidazole. So this next group of medications we're talking about, um, I, I lumped them into special classes of antibiotics. They don't fall into any particular family, which is kind of sad. Um, so you don't need to worry about at least memorizing that. Um, but metronidazole is annoying because it ends in azole, and usually azoles are for antifungals. Right? So metronidazole is not an antifungal. Uh, metronidazole is an antibiotic. Uh, what are some use cases for metronidazole we know of? Rosacea. Topically, we use it topically for rosacea. What else? Bacterial vaginosis. H. pylori is used as one of the treatments, right? What else? Diverticulitis. So do you use it alone for diverticulitis? Okay, so why do you think we add it to diverticulitis? Because of anaerobic coverage. So anaerobic coverage is important, um, and that's usually when you're going to see metro used. Like, there's primary indications like bacterial vaginosis, trichomonas, um, but when you're seeing it used in addition, it's usually to add an anaerobic coverage to something. So they'll use XYZ plus metro to cover for anaerobic. So when you guys are saying, like, oh, ceftriaxone and metro, Ceftriaxone is going to give you good gram-positive coverage, some gram-negative coverage, but no real anaerobic coverage, very minimal. So you add metro, because GI infections usually have anaerobic bacteria, right? The mechanism of action of metronidazole is not extremely important for your pants. Um, I've never seen it asked before. So I wouldn't be um, overly focused on mechanism of action for metro. They, they usually the mechanisms they ask you are the ones that have major classes that can be applied to multiple medications. Adverse drug effects, the biggest one that you need to know is what? Disulfiram reactions associated to alcohol use, patient education, avoid use of alcohol. It does have an interaction with cimetidine, but so does literally every other medication known to man.
Daptomycin is another medication. Daptomycin, you're not going to see tested um, in the pants very often at all. Um, it's not a commonly prescribed medication. Um, but what I do want you to know is that in patients who have failed most other antibiotic treatments, it can be an effective form of treatment for patients who have MRSA um, and vancomycin-resistant uh, bacteria. So I'm not going to test you guys on um, daptomycin because it's really not commonly, uh, commonly tested antibiotic. So I want you guys to focus much more on the ones that you will be prescribing, you will see people taking, and that you will be tested on on your pants. And daptomycin is not one of them. Uh, the next medication, which I literally can't pronounce and hadn't heard of ever in my entire life until I started working on this lecture. Um, can somebody try that one? Quinupristin, uh, Dalfopristin. Yeah. I had never, I had never heard of the medication in my life until I started preparing this lecture. Um, and I'm not going to test you on a medication that I've literally never heard of in my entire life. So, wouldn't that be overly concerned? Um, not going to happen. Last two medications are important, which is nitrofurantoin and phosphomycin. Uh, these medications have very limited use cases, and they're used in the management of what? UTIs. Okay. I think phosphomycin just became the preferred initial treatment for pregnant women with asymptomatic um, uh, bacteria in the urine. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. I started seeing a lot of people prescribing it, and I was like, why is everyone prescribing this? I've never seen this before. And I went out up to date, and I'm like, it's because it's the new first-line medication for um, asymptomatic bacteria in pregnant women. So that's why. We used to use macrobit all the time in pregnancy, but you have to be careful about what trimester you're using it in. So um, phosphomycin is a better alternative. You don't really have to worry about it. And a lot of times in pregnancy, if, if you're working in acute care, you're relying on what the patient's telling you as far as what trimester they're in. So you've you got to be careful with that. Yeah. Yeah, so you guys haven't done ID, uh, but I'm sure you've done Euro. So, and this is important because this is something I see people do all the time and it's really annoying. If, if patients have bacteria in the urine, you don't need to treat it. Okay? The bacteria in the urine can be contaminants. It can be a lot of things. So unless the patient's there because they have some kind of symptom, fever, back pain, burning on urination, frequency, urgency, if they have that and they have bacteria in the urine, you treat it. If they don't have any symptoms at all, you don't treat it. But the exception to that rule is pregnant women. You always treat pregnant women who have asymptomatic bacteria, no matter what, and you treat them with phosphomycin. And you also treat patients who've recently had any kind of catheterization or procedures like that with bacteria in the urine, you treat them also. Um, but other than that, you, you don't treat it. A lot of patients on antibiotics because they do like a routine UA and there's some bacteria in it and they'll put them on antibiotics. Then they do another UA, there's still some bacteria, they put them on another antibiotic. Then they get, you know, bacterial vaginosis, they put them on metronidazole. And then they get a yeast infection, they put them on fluconazole, and it's like all for like a, something that wasn't even there to begin with. So, yeah. So, you use phosphomycin in patients that are pregnant regardless? It's the preferred treatment. And in asymptomatic bacteria, a lot of times you can do it in one dose and knock it out, and that's it. Uh, one to three, so now they're recommending one, a single dose. So the one that was first oh, for pregnancy with bacteria is 
Fossilmycin, yeah. That's the new one. On your on your pants, on your pants, you might still be getting nitro. So you're gonna have to play it by ear. When you guys are doing like Rosh questions, you'll get a feel for what they're telling you. But it used to be every question was macrobid. Clinically speaking though, within like the past few months, fossilmycin's the, the first line. For pregnant women who have no symptoms and have bacteria in the ear. Uh, so she asked me if there's farm questions for um, uh, rush questions for farm, not necessarily, but when you're going to, I mean, there are farm questions in there, but you can't isolate them, which makes it very impractical to study. But when you're doing questions, you, you're going to get farm questions for sure as you go. But yeah, no, you can't. But we're going to do questions on this, I promise, because if not, you guys will go crazy. Um, so I also included this down here, which is kind of helpful that you guys can go over. So this is like a wheel that will tell you which ones are like only anaerobic, like metro, uh, which ones are gram-negative coverage, which ones are gram-positive, and which ones are mixed, and how they're mixed. Uh, bactericidal versus bacteriostatic. Um, and yeah, you guys should also make similar things for um, you know MRSA coverage, because just because it says gram-positive here doesn't mean that it covers MRSA, right? So you should make individual tables, which I didn't have time to make, I was gonna do it, but has MRSA coverage, pseudomonal coverage, and anaerobic coverage. And then when you're studying, you should be testing each other on what covers anaerobes, what covers MRSA, what covers pseudomonas. You should be testing each other on mechanisms of action, and you should be testing each other on intra-drug class differences between the same class. So dicloxacillin uh, or ampicillin might cause a lot of diarrhea. Um, you know, clindamycin might cause the most C. diff. So those little differences, as far as side effects go, that's what you want to focus on. Um, and that is it. You guys have a good one.